Good afternoon. Madam Moderator, we are here from several presbyteries to address Overtures 1301, 1304, 1306, and 1311. We thank you and the committee for taking the time to listen to us share why our presbyteries have sent overtures proposing a constitutional amendment. My name is Scott Clark. I'm an ordained minister, teaching elder in the PCUSA. I'm also married to Jeff, my partner of 13 years. Redwoods Presbytery is one of several presbyteries that have sent you two overtures, and I urge you to approve both, both an AI and a constitutional amendment. As you've heard, the AI will offer immediate relief to pastors who want to serve all their people. At the same time, the constitutional amendment starts the long-term process of amending the Constitution to fully recognize the dignity of all people. Both an AI and an amendment are needed. I'm here today to talk about the harm that the current policies of the church continue to do to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people and their families, all in the name of Jesus Christ. The harm has to stop. I'm also an attorney, and over the past six years, I've had the honor of representing Presbyterian pastors, Gene Southard and Jane Spar, who have been charged with celebrating the marriages of same-gender couples. As marriage became legal in a number of states, these couples came to their pastor and they asked their pastor to celebrate their marriages with them and with their families. The current policies of the church insist that these pastors tell these couples and their families no. They insist that the pastor turn these couples and these families away from the church. This is cruel. This is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to mention abundant provisions of the book of order that mandate inclusion and full participation in the life of the church for everyone. I've argued the last three marriage cases before the General Assembly Permanent Judicial Commission, the GAPJC, and in each of those cases, which you'll be reading, in each of them, these pastors and these couples have come forward and have testified as to the importance of marriage in our lives. And throughout those judicial cases, judicial commissions and individual commissioners have called on this body, the General Assembly, to stop the cycle of harm and to amend the Constitution. In fact, one Presbytery Judicial Commission actually apologized for the current policies of the church. They apologized to the same gender couples who had testified on behalf of the church for the harm that the church is doing in the name of Jesus Christ through its current policies. This year, when the GAPJC affirmed the conviction of Reverend Dr. Jane Spar, six of the 15 commissioners spoke out strongly against the court's decision. They point out that the current policies of the church treat lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people like we are somehow children of a lesser God. They have said that this second-class treatment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people shows the hypocrisy of the church as the church claims to include all, but then excludes lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people from the pastoral care of the church in marriage. As you've heard, seven of the 15 members of the GAPJC have implored this General Assembly to amend the Constitution. Six of them, including the moderator of the GAPJC, wrote it very clearly in their dissent, and I want to read you what they said. And so this is in the decisions that you have, and I really encourage you to take a look at 
the actual dissents that follow. This is what the dissenters said. Since the directory for worship is part of our Constitution and the majority has found that it may give rise to disciplinary cases, then it, the Constitution, should be immediately amended to clearly state that we fully welcome the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community into their rightful place in our church, including allowing them to marry. The Constitution must be amended because it is harming real people and real lives. As you read these decisions, I know these people. I love these people, these two courageous pastors, these 17 courageous, loving, married couples. As they've come to testify before the courts in these proceedings, here's what they've said to the church. For us, for same-gender couples, marriage is a sacred vow of commitment, a covenant between the two of us and with our community that brings God into our marriage where God resides as part and parcel of our marriage and our family. Marriage is a part of how we form family and how we raise children. Our marriages stand in continuity with the marriages of our parents and our grandparents. And yet, and yet under the current policies of the church, the PCUSA treats us like second-class citizens and insists that pastors turn us away from the church when we seek to be married. Please, stop this cycle of harm. The gospel of Jesus Christ insists that the church welcome all people into the full life of community without discrimination. I urge you to recommend that the General Assembly amend the Constitution to more fully reflect the expansive welcome of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good afternoon. I'm the Reverend David Calvin Kingsley, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Goshen, New York, and I come to you on behalf of the Presbytery of Hudson River. Sexual orientation for straight people is the capacity for romantic love and giving of self. It's not just about sexual attraction and behavior. As part of who we are, we are attracted to another person, can build a meaningful relationship, and become a family. Family is not about sex, it's about relationship, and that makes it dependent upon having a companion or a spouse. The consequence of the traditional interpretation of the Bible is that while straight people are told to avoid lust, casual relationships, and promiscuity, gay people are told to avoid all romantic relationships. Though capable of, capable of and desirous of loving relationships, they're told that even lifelong, committed relationships would be sinful because their sexual orientation is broken. They are told that they will never have a romantic bond that will be celebrated by their community and that they will never have a family. So a gay person who finds someone they can grow to love and want to spend the rest of their life with is told, according to the traditional interpretation, that their only choice would be to walk away with a broken heart and retreat into isolation, alone. They're told that it would not be a single incident, but one doomed to be repeated throughout their life. Within the traditional interpretation of scripture, falling in love is one of the worst things that can happen to a gay person. Two problems present themselves with this broken traditional interpretation. First, in Matthew 7, Jesus warns against false teachers, and he offers a principle to test good teaching from bad teaching. 
By their fruits you will recognize them, he says. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Good teachings are not destructive to human dignity, don't lead to emotional and spiritual devastation and loss of self-esteem and self-worth. But this is the consequence for gay people with the traditional teaching on homosexuality. It has not bore good fruit in their lives, and it has caused them much pain and suffering. Taking Jesus seriously, that bad fruit cannot come from a good tree, we all need to question whether that traditional teaching is correct. The second problem comes from Genesis, the creation of Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created man and woman, and some say two men and two women would be a deviation from that design. But this story deserves closer attention. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them, declaring them to either be good or very good, except for one thing. In Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. God makes Eve for Adam, and a woman is a suitable partner for the vast majority of men, straight men, but not for gay men. For gay men, it is another gay man who is a suitable partner. For a lesbian woman, it is another lesbian woman. The necessary consequence of the traditional teaching on homosexuality is that even though gay people have suitable partners, they must reject them, live alone for their whole life without a spouse or a family of their own. We are now declaring good, the very first thing in scripture God declared not good. By holding to the traditional interpretation, we are now contradicting the Bible's own teachings that it is not good for anyone to be forced to be alone and teaching that it is. Thank you. Madam Moderator and members of the committee, I am Myra Kazanjan. I'm a teaching elder from the Presbytery of Utica. Today, in our society, we recognize the civil unions of same-gender couples. We permit pastoral care and certain worship services for committed same-gender couples. But some faithful Christians are uncomfortable with calling these relationships marriage. They are like marriage in every sense of the word, except that they involve same-gender couples. These couples provide the same benefits to one another as marriage did for our Hebrew ancestors. They provide for the birth and nurture of children. They provide compassionate mutual support for each party. These unions provide economic security for the couple and for their children. So why can't we call these relationships marriage? Is it our differing understanding of scripture? As Presbyterians, 
We do believe in the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is constantly moving us towards new insights, towards new understanding. We are the reformers. Is the problem, is what keeps us from recognizing these relationships of marriage, the judgment of others? Well, Jesus taught that we're all in the same boat. No one of us is greater or lesser than another. Is it that some of us have no personal experience with loving same-gender couples and their children that might allow them to see the beauty of such relationships. We as a denomination need to stop lobbing grenades at each other and return to our essential mission of sharing Christ with the world. Yes, the passage of this amendment will upset some of us. But real people are being hurt now, particularly lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender children. These youth are less likely than other youth to describe themselves as happy. They are more likely to be bullied. Who else but the Church of Jesus Christ should reach out to them? And what is the message that we are sending to the children of these same gender couples they're growing up with? Knowing that the people of God accept them and their parents just as they are, would really make a difference to them and their loved ones, we can be sure. A pastor from my presbytery wrote, we are all trying to discern God's word for us. And as surely as we are all unique creations of a loving God, we will, each of us, disagree from time to time. But if we profess to call all people to Christ, to proclaim God's love for us in worship, to guarantee full participation in worship to all persons, we must give teaching elders and sessions the discretion to choose according to their conscience to recognize the covenant of Christian marriage for two people of the same gender, just as we allow teaching elders and sessions the discretion to choose otherwise. To do anything else denies one group within our membership the opportunity of fully worshiping God.
My name is Andrew Stahlik, and I was ordained as Minister of Word and Sacrament in the Reformed Church in Czech Republic in a denomination with roots that go back to the Hussite Reformation of 1415, full 100 years before Martin Luther. Therefore, Reformation theology and its heritage are very important for me, and I want to talk to you about the spirit of that time. The Book of Order of the Presbyterian Church USA clearly states that marriage is a civil contract. This statement about the civil nature of marriage goes back to the time of Reformation and was an integral part of the Reformation struggle for the spiritual freedom and autonomy of individuals from the overreaching and over-controlling medieval church. The reformers unequivocally declared marriage to be a civil contract and not a sacrament. For instance, John Calvin in his Institutes, Book 4, says, Marriage is a good and holy ordinance of God, just as agriculture, architecture, shoemaking and shaving are lawful ordinances of God, but they are not sacraments, end quote. The reformers rightly recognized that the Roman Catholic Church made marriage into sacrament in order to exercise power and control over society and over the lives of individuals, even on this very personal and intimate level. Calvin called this church control tyranny. Luther called it the Babylonian captivity of the church. Reformation theologians they're quite clear that marriage did not belong under the direct jurisdiction of the church. The Reformation did indeed open the space for the autonomy of the secular and the individual. The Reformers recognized the universal importance of marriage, which was, as they said, and remains a broader institution than any church, any religion, or any culture. For the reformers, there was no such category as Christian marriage. Such a category would undermine the universal nature and value of this institution. As Protestants, we can speak about the marriages of Christians, or marriages conducted by Christian ministers or marriages sealed within the bounds of Christian congregations. In our Protestant ethos, the institution of marriage is ultimately shaped and formed by individual couples and regulated by any given society and their appropriate civil authorities. As the civil authorities of many states broadened the realm of freedom and expanded the rights to marry to same-gender couples, it is precisely in the spirit of reformation to allow pastors and congregations in these states to treat marriages in a similar and equal manner. I am worried that a mistaken and narrow interpretation of few sentences in the worship section of Book of Order, taken literally, 
are being used to seduce the church back to Babylonian captivity of sacramental tyranny in another attempt to exercise inappropriate ecclesiastical authority over individual lives. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lara Marsh. I'm a ruling elder from the Presbytery of East Iowa. I am also married to Andrew, my husband of 17 years, and we have two children who are 8 and 10. This, this afternoon, I'd like you to think of a word or phrase that best describes Christianity for you. For some, it might be generous, giving, loving. A phrase might be taking care of the weak, preaching the gospel, merciful and gracious. However, according to marketing research firm the Barna Group, the word that best describes Christianity for Americans between the ages of 16 and 29 was anti-homosexual. Researcher David Kinneman states, 59% of young adults with a Christian background have left the church, and one of the top reasons is because they perceive the church to be too exclusive, particularly regarding their lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender friends. Eight million twenty-somethings have left the church, and this is one reason why, end quote. Contrary to what the extremist media might portray, this is not a liberal versus conservative issue. From my own uh, home state of Iowa, evangelical Christian Republican Kathy Potts says, I know many who hold conservative values like equality and freedom. If it weren't for the loud voices of a few in our party, I do believe more Republicans would stand up in support of marriage equality. I didn't always feel that way. One of the things that changed my mind was watching my kids. They love and support their friends, regardless of their sexual orientation, race, gender, or religion. Then I realized that I was tired of watching adults judge each other while my children could embrace the differences in their friends. After all, that is what being a Christian is all about." End quote. The church's position on same-gender marriage has been self-contradictory. Some within the church deny loving, committed, same-gender couples the right to marry and at the same time make accusations of promiscuity. Meanwhile, heterosexual couples can get married and then divorced in a matter of hours. These overtures allow all of us to exercise freedom that resonates with everyone, from youth to seniors, liberal to conservative, privileged to disenfranchised. These overtures emphasize trust of local sessions and teaching elders to make decisions about what is right for them in their time and in their place. They do not force anyone to do anything. In 2011, 3.8% of the U.S. population self-identified themselves as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Now some would argue that this self-identification number is much lower than reality. And it does seem like a small percentage for all this fuss. Maybe. Until you hear that only 2.1% of the U.S. population self-identified themselves as Presbyterian. That number is from 2008, and it has been dwindling for decades. Fifty years from now, there will still be lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons. But will there be Presbyterians? I agree with Christian writer and speaker Rachel Held Evans, who says, We are tired of fighting. 
tired of vain efforts to advance the kingdom through politics and power, tired of being known for what we are against, not what we are for, we are ready to stop waging war and start washing feet. My name is Ray Bagnuolo, and I'm a teaching elder in the Presbyterian of New York City and speaking in favor of 1304, which we concurred with and the other overtures that you heard before. So we ask you two things. We ask you, please, to send forward from this committee to the plenary a recommendation for the passage of an authoritative interpretation, freeing our pastors, giving them immediate relief so that we can perform same-gender marriages in those states where those marriages are legal, and then two, to send to the plenary a recommendation for a change in the language of the Constitution and the Directory for Worship so that all marriages may be considered equal, marriages for same gender and not same gender couples as well. In 2005, I was ordained as an openly gay pastor, and I've served the church in, Pal in uh, the Presbyterian Hudson River. In the first 16 months, I performed 14 memorial services. Nobody asked me if I was gay. What they asked me was, how are we going to live without our loved one? How are we going to take care of the family that remains? And how do I know really, really, that my loved one is in God's hands? This is not about being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. This is about knowing who we are, sisters, brothers, baptized Christians in the body of Christ, knowing who we are, and whose we are. Presbyterians have done this before. We know about justice and courage. We know about taking risks. And we know how to move beyond the fear that traps others faithfully. And we ask you to do that again with these overtures. Thank you for hearing us today. And God bless you. Thank you, Mark. Call for a minute of silence so you could have a